I wonder if you would uh, take out a Bible, if you have one with you, and go to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute while you're turning there. Luke chapter 6, we'll be around verse 39. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we've just been able to declare truth, but also a request. We declare that you have no rival, you have no equal, and you are raised to life again. So we have reason to praise you. We have reason to follow you. We have reason to be here this morning. But at the same time, we, we sang a song that asks that our life would be a reflection of the reality of the decision that we've made that our, our life would be praise to you. As you cause your word to come alive this morning, I, I do pray that you would cause that to stir in our hearts the, the exact same way as we read it in the text this morning. You're speaking to us, and you're asking us to count the cost and to determine whether or not we really are living the way that we proclaim that we're living. So I pray, God, that your word would be alive. You say that it is and that you cause it to be active and you cause it to do things. So we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit right now that you would make that a reality for every person who's gathered in this auditorium, those who are watching online, that we will not leave here unchanged, but rather changed because we've encountered you, the living God. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. You hypocrite. There's a label that'll get your attention, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a setting where you've heard somebody call somebody out like that. Jesus did that. He did that on a regular basis. He called people hypocrites in public settings. You'll see that come out in Luke chapter 6 this morning. He wanted to get the attention of those who were listening to say, this is reality People who are putting on an act about what they want people to believe, but it's not true about who they really are. Maybe you've already pulled your notes out this morning and you see that one Greek word that's in your notes and it, it occurs a couple times this morning, hypocrites. It, it's where we get the English word hypocrite from. This Greek word is the definition for an actor under an assumed character. So really drink in the meaning of that statement there. Because to some degree, every one of us are actors. We all have that potential to be hypocritical in our behavior. Here's the most simple ways it comes out. We, we want to present ourselves as something other than what we really are, so we take steps to present ourselves well. Um, we'll just talk externally here for a minute. When we get up in the morning, we, you know, take a shower. We want to clean ourselves up, so we brush our hair, hopefully you brush your teeth, right? And so we do things to make ourselves look better. That, that's external. We get that. But some will go a step further and will present themselves as something they completely are not. Instagram and Facebook have given rise to that like none other in, in our generation. Um, social media has provided a platform to represent yourself globally in a scale that has heretofore been unheard of on the planet. We can present ourselves as something completely unlike us. Like, what if this morning I put up a, a Facebook profile photo of myself when I was in my 20s? What would that be like? <laughs> Some people came to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, that wasn't really you, was it? <laughs> yeah, really was. And, and it's the 80s, so there's a lot of hair, right? 
I was finishing my last year of flight school and majored in aviation in college and, and in Bible, um, double major. And so, you know, my senior photos with an airplane. And I have this image in my mind. I bet a lot of you do too. Probably not so much if you're in your 20s greenhouse, but if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, beyond, you probably see yourself internally. You've got this mental image of your mind when you were in your 20s, and then you walk by the mirror, right? <laughs> and it's that reminder that gravity is a real thing. And aging is a real thing. And every morning, my mirror reveals the truth. But that's external. That's not really what Jesus is going after here. It's not exactly what he's talking about when we look at this parable this morning in Luke chapter 6. Rather, what you're going to see Jesus go after in this parable is the capacity, or I should say the incapacity, that we all have to see ourselves accurately, to see who we really are, to see how God sees us. This parable drives home the point that we are who God declares us to be. We'd love to present ourselves socially one way. We'd love to present ourselves to our family one way, but we really are who God declares us to be. So when we say, I am who you say I am, and we like to sing that here at New Hope, that's true of both the good and the bad. We are who God declares us to be because no one knows me like Jesus. Right, New Hope? Say amen if you agree with that. No no one knows you like Jesus. He sees right to the core. He sees to the heart. So if, if I'm outside of a relationship with God, I truly am a sinner in desperate need for a Savior Regardless of how I try and present myself on social media, regardless of how I try and present myself in my social circle, I really am who God says I am. I'll contrast that with a reality. If a person's in a relationship with God, if a person has recognized who Jesus really is, I really and truly am seen by him as holy and righteous and forgiven and destined for eternity in heaven, all because of Jesus. But the question of this parable this morning is, am I really living consistently with who I really am? So Jesus spoke this particular parable to expose hypocrisy. And that's why I started off with that particular word. Let me frame it for you this way. In the first century, Jesus is walking the planet, and the ruling elite find him absolutely fascinating. He's a mystery, They can't make sense of who he is or what he is, and they're very curious about him. You especially find that in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, the lawyer, shows up at the house that Jesus is staying at at night, and he comes in the door and says, we know you must be from God, because no one can do the things that you do unless they're sent from God, but help us here. We can't make sense of the things that you're doing. Well, you find that he's a curiosity to them. And so while walking planet Earth, it's fantastic for them to observe him until he wasn't so fantastic. Because for a while, Jesus' conversations with them were engaging, they were stimulating, they were invigorating, until he was all over them and in their face and calling them out like, you brood of vipers. You ever said that to somebody in a social setting? I doubt it, or you wouldn't be invited back to that setting. None of us would be so bold to say that in a public place. You gathering of snakes, right? Can you imagine? Jesus was incredibly, brutally honest. So can you imagine the tension? 
between the crowd who adores Jesus and the leaders who viciously begin rejecting him. So Jesus uses a parable to help those who are listening to really understand the contrast. And remember what we talked about, a parable is a laying alongside, taking a physical reality, laying it alongside a spiritual reality to pull out a truth. And that's what you find Jesus doing. And throughout this particular parable, here's the big idea. The big idea is consistency between the source and the product. If I've lost you on that thought, think of it this way. If you come alongside a river, let's say you're walking in the woods and you wonder if that water is clean and pure and if you can drink from it, if you run upstream from that river and find its source, find its origin, you'll determine right away whether or not you want to take a drink from that river. Consistency between the source and the product. So Jesus starts off this way in verse 39 of Luke chapter 6. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So here's the background. We've got uh, the ancient world setting here. And a smaller city would have only one gate. A bigger city is going to have multiple gates. And they were determined on the amount of prestige they had in the nations based on how many gates they had going in and out. But what was true of every city, whether they were big or small, is that the gates were shut at night in order to keep out intruders and to protect the people from inside, and they would reopen the gates at sunrise. So each morning, people within the city would get up and they would go out of the gates to draw water for their family or to water their herds or tend to their gardens or use the restroom, if you will. Especially in the smaller cities, there weren't bathrooms like we know them today. So you could find yourself at the city gates and you could find it to be very congested in the morning because lots of people are trying to get out the gates to get out into the surrounding areas, right? Add to that, there's many cities that are surrounded with heavy foliage. And the cities in the Middle East were built in such a way that they took advantage of the landscape. So there wasn't just the gates, there wasn't just the walls, but there was the surrounding foliage that would make it difficult for invaders to climb over the walls. And the narrow paths that go around and steep cliffs, making it really dangerous for a blind person. So in this particular case, the pit that Jesus is referring to here is a hole that's been dug in the field outside the wall that people filled with water in order to water their herds because the herds stayed outside at night and they would go behind the gates. And so the herds still needed to drink and so there's these holes in the field and If a blind person was walking through the field and rushing to get out of the city in the morning, if they didn't have someone to guide them, they could fall into the pit. In the picture that Jesus is giving here, he says, there's not just one blind person, there's two blind people. And one's walking ahead of the other, and one walks right into the pit, and the other one walks right after him and falls into the pit as well. Well, in this particular parable, Jesus is picturing the blind guide as the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are leading other people. And leading another person who's also blind through this gauntlet of spiritual dangers. And they find themselves falling into the pit. And the pit pictured here spiritually is hell. So you've got the physical laid alongside the spiritual bringing out the truth of what Jesus is really driving at here. So he's calling the Pharisees blind guides. Which is a play on their own description of themselves. Because they consider themselves a guide to the blind. 
In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were famous for memorizing large portions of Scripture, walking out into the public arena and then beginning to cite the passages of Scripture so that all of the community could hear them, putting themselves on this plane, this plateau, saying, we're above you, we know Scripture so well, we'll be your guide, we'll talk you through it. Well, Paul plays on that in Romans chapter 2. Here's an example for you, look with me on the screen. Romans 2.19, I'm confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of the truth. So they picture themselves as these guides, and here's the danger in that, because they pictured others as being void of spiritual vision whatsoever. There's a huge danger in that. The, the trouble with taking this position as being a guide to other people is that that one easily assumes that they're superior to the one who needs guiding, elevating, self-elevating the, themselves. Human nature has this propensity that we always are tempted to grade moral behavior in other people. And strangely, for whatever reason, our own failures seem to really shrink in our view and other people's failures really seem to magnify in our view and we have a, a lopsided view of other people, and it becomes very serious in our eyes. So what Jesus is calling them out, saying, you leaders of the blind, you're leading them right into hell because you're also blind. This is an example from Matthew, the way that he was speaking to them. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. It's not the way to win friends and influence people, by the way. All right? That's not what he was interested in doing. So envision what Jesus is envisioning here and what he's asking his audience to envision. You've got two individuals who are laying in the bottom of a pit, helpless, and they've stumbled into it, thinking they knew where they were going, but they got no spiritual direction whatsoever. Now, think with me about who his audience might be. If you back up far enough in Luke chapter 6, what you're going to find is Jesus has just spent the night in prayer up on a mountain, prayed all night long. At daybreak, he goes down to where his disciples are gathered, and he begins calling out the 12. He hasn't identified them yet. So he says, Peter, you're going to be one of mine, James, John, Bartholomew, Philip, Thomas, you're coming with me. So he's got the 12 gathered around him and then the hundreds of people who came to hear him and apparently thousands of listeners are in this level playing field where he's gathered now. He's come off the mountain. He's beginning to talk to them. And they're hearing him speak about the Pharisees and the scribes and they're thinking he's only talking about the Pharisees. And there would be a mistake because since the disciples are not greater than Jesus, he goes into verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher. So in order for the pupil to become like Jesus, they got to become fully trained. And he's explaining that a person is not able to hide their attitude towards their righteousness issues. What's really inside you is going to come out. So in the case of righteousness, you've got authentic and you've got pretenders. You've got genuine and you've got hypocrites. You've got the real and you've got the fake. And the fake are unable to hide the fact that righteousness doesn't dwell within them. Ultimately, they're going to lead other people astray. They're going to all fall into the pit because you can't hide what you really are. In the case of today, 2019, you and I, we can't lead others where we haven't been ourselves. My mentor said this to me when I was in my 30s. 
I'll say this twice so you really get it down. He said, Mark, you cannot take other people any deeper than you personally are. You cannot take people any deeper than you personally are. So if we see ourselves as excellent guides, but don't realize our own blindness, we're going to lead other people astray. Here's Jesus' point. These leaders, these teachers who are blind, the lives of those they impact, they're naturally going to follow them because the teacher sets the tone. Well, in Jesus' case, the disciples of the rabbi want to be like the rabbi. Every disciple wants to be like the rabbi, so they do everything that the rabbi does. They can't be expected to be better than what the rabbi is. So Jesus is calling out the Pharisees at the same time saying, here's the level of standard I'm going to set for you. Because the arrogance is visibly evident already in the lives of the Pharisees. So it's going to show up in their followers. Now he continues with this image of eyesight. Go with me to the next verse, 41. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I recently, in the last month, went to my eye doctor to get an exam and have him check my eyes to see if they've changed, and turns out I needed a new pair of glasses, Right? And so I, I use them occasionally. Sometimes there's a huge glare in here from the light coming through the windows. And sometimes I teach for them on, sometimes I teach for them off. But I needed to go to a professional to have my eyes checked because only the professional could look at my eyes through magnifying lenses and really tell what was going on. And I needed a prescription. It's absolutely crucial to have regular eye exams because it's not just about me. It's not just about what I see. It's about the other person who's coming towards me in another car. The people in the other cars trust that I'm, I'm driving on the road. They're trusting that I'm seeing really well. They're, they're trusting that my vision is good enough that I'm not going to cause harm to them. Well, in the case, if we want to transfer that over to spiritual things, it's crucial that you and I go to God and that we would ask him to check our spiritual vision because we are prone to be blind and not even know it or to have blind spots. So we have to go to him and say, God, would you check me? Do a check on my heart, and that's exactly what you find King David doing in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Look at me on the screen. Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This, this is King David. This is the guy who we're told is after God's own heart. And yet he says, you know what, there's a potential that there's wickedness in me that I can't even see on my own. I can have some blind spots. God, spots. God, God, would you check my heart? Would you check my spiritual eyesight? And as you pray and as you get into the word, God will correct your sight. He's going to show you what to watch for because there may be in your life people who trust you. You profess to be a Christ follower, you may be impacting your spouse, your family, your children, your social circle. And if you're going along blindly and you haven't checked yourself, you could lead them right off the edge of the cliff and do double damage. So Jesus really ramps it up. He says, it's preposterous to think you can get the speck out of somebody else's eye if your eye is blocked. 
Now, when Jesus begins presenting this image, I'm thinking it, this is probably one of the first LOLs in the first century. Because this is a really humorous image if you've got somebody with a little tiny speck in their eye and somebody else coming along with a two by four hanging out of their eye, right? They're gonna do eye surgery on me? Just think back to the summer. I know it feels like winter already, but just like last week it was summer, right? So think of maybe you're outside, you get a little bug in your eye. You're, you're wincing and you're squinting and your eye begins to water and you can't get at it and somebody comes up alongside you and says, here, I will help you with that. I even have a Q-tip right here. Let me help you get the bug out of your eye. And you turn to look at them and they've got a tarantula on their eyeball. <laughs> like, you're going to touch me? I don't think so. Each of these images that Jesus is painting here are linked. He says, if, if the blind guy is leading the blind guy, it's just like the person who has the log in their eye. They're, they're trying to correct someone else's faults. See, this powerfully illustrates for us why we're not supposed to judge other people. What it, what it really does is it exposes the reality that the one who's judging other people, they're imperfect themselves. One who is unable to see their own imperfections while seeing so vividly the imperfections of people around them, all that's doing is revealing that they're a hypocrite. That's the classical definition of a hypocrite. I can see all the flaws in the other people and they don't stop to look at themselves. Jesus' most constant charge against people who faked righteousness was hypocrite. So you remember that definition we looked at in the very beginning, Hippocrates. An actor, one who assumes a character. It's not really who they are, but they assume that role. Now Jesus steps it up again, verse 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. I grew up on the west side of Michigan in Whitehall north of Muskegon, south of Ludington. And I became very familiar with the fruit industry. My mom made sure that as teenagers, we got out and we worked the fruit farms. And so a lot of my summers, I spent time in picking blueberries on the blueberry bushes. And I learned a lot about fruit. And the most basic thing I learned was you don't get apples from an orange tree, right? You go to a blueberry bush, you expect to get blueberries. Apple trees always produce apples. Fruit is always true to its origin. A good person is going to produce good fruit, not evil. How do we balance that? Because we know that if we believe in Jesus, we still sin. We'll come back to this thought in just a minute, but the reality is the overall witness of our words, the overall witness of our life and our actions has to be consistently good. So Jesus ends it by coming into verse 45 this way. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. In the Greek language, it literally says from the abundance of what's in there, from the abundance of what I have inside me. That's what I speak from. Charles Simeon said it this way in 1832. The heart is a fountain from whence all our actions proceed. In it, there is a treasure, either of good or evil. So from a biblical perspective, 
my heart is a treasury. It's like a bank vault. And I've stored things away within that bank vault. I put it away for future use. Jesus is pointing to this reality that your words eventually are going to leak out. It's going to reveal who you really are. You are who God says you are. And your heart reveals that. What comes out is proof of what's inside. So a gossip reveals a lot about themselves. It reveals insecurity. Like I got to rip other people down in order to build myself up. Lying, it reveals a great deal. It, re- it reveals a person who's got deceit in them. We're talking about people who habitually do these things. False promises, that reveals a betrayer. Somebody who has no problem betraying other people. So just as a tree is known by its fruit, so people from what they say, from what's inside, it's revealed whether or not there's righteousness in there. In this case, the fruit tree stands for the overflow of the heart, what's coming out. It was said this way in Scripture, Matthew 12, 33. The tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That's Jesus again talking to the Pharisees, by the way. But even though Jesus speaks to the Pharisees that way, that harshly, look at the way that Paul speaks to the church. Because apparently in Ephesus, the same thing was going on. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. Uh, There's one that causes me to do a heart check. Every time I speak, do I only speak what's good for edification of other people? That causes me to have some degree of guilt. I don't know about you, but I got to check myself on that. Now, next, if at this point, the audience listening to Jesus is wiping the sweat off their brows saying, I'm really glad he's talking to the Pharisees and not talking about me. I'm so glad to dodge that bullet. They cannot dodge the blunt force trauma of his very next words in verse 46. I'm gonna ask you to chew on this this week. Look at what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That sets us up really well for next week because he begins talking about the wise man who built his house on a rock of foundation. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So we've got people who are calling Jesus Lord, and he's saying, you call me that, but you don't do what I say, and now we can see that this wasn't just about the Pharisees. This is where this turns. This wasn't just about the scribes. This is about his followers People who are gathered around him and say, I belong to you. No wonder he starts out by calling them hypocrites. It's one thing to have a knowledge of God's way. It is quite another to carry it out. See, his point can't be missed. But even so, we could miss it because of our own blind spots. We could sit here this morning and say, I don't quite see how this applies to me. Most of us could still miss the point. If I haven't been blatant enough yet, let me be really blatant here. Most will read that parable throughout the course of their life and think, I'm the one that's got the tiny little speck in my eye, and that other person over there, they got the two by four. So many of us will sit through a church service and say, I really wish Bob was here to hear this. This would have been so good for him. Too bad Sarah didn't show up this morning. She needed to hear this. And Jesus is saying, wait, well, what about you? Do you call me Lord? Are you doing what I say? 
See, if you miss the intentional direction of this parable and what it's driving home, it's all about our propensity to judge others, to judge others poorly, and not so much ourselves. We don't hold ourselves to the same standard. Now, this could confuse you as you're hearing this. You might be leaving here this morning thinking, well, I, I feel guilt over this. Many people in the 9 o'clock service said to me, I feel so convicted after hearing that. I want you to hear this if you're feeling guilt over this. Good, right? First of all, that's God at work. That's the Holy Spirit doing that. But it might take you to another place, a dark place. It might make you think, am I really saved? Like, I'm wondering, is this true of me? Well, first of all, hear this. Remember, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to people who call him Lord, Lord. The people who are surrounding him. So let's say this. Let's accept the reality that none of us is perfectly good. Amen? All right? I know you don't say amen to that one quite as heartily, but it's true. None of us is perfectly good. Jesus has made us perfect in his sight. We're not perfectly good, so we have what Paul called a body of death within us. We still carry sin within us, and there will be days you lose the battle. But praise God, Jesus won the war, right? You're going to lose the battle occasionally. You're going to find yourself, hopefully not too often, gossiping. And you've got to catch yourself in the midst of it. Don't want to be a hypocrite, so there's going to be days you do lose the battle, but Jesus won the war. So this isn't really about you getting more saved. If you've confessed Jesus as your Savior, you already are saved for eternity. You're destined for eternity with Jesus. This is about you looking more like Jesus, looking more like the one who redeemed you for eternity. So check yourself this morning. What is it that comes forth from your mouth? What is it that comes forth from your actions? even from your body language, from your demeanor. The, the fruits of your life are evidence. For a believer, the fruits of your life are evidence of your conversion. It's not the grounds of your acceptance before God. You can't earn your way to God, but there should be some evidence. So if upon examination this morning, maybe you're going to come up to the communion tables, and during the time of examining yourself, maybe you this week or even this morning would come to this conclusion that I've got a propensity to gossip. I've got a propensity to lie. I, I have diminished others. Well, then you've got an ace in the hole because you can go to God and confess that. And God, who is the perfect eye doctor, will examine your heart if you ask him to. He'll look at you and see if there is any wicked way within you, and he calls it out. You just have to be willing to change that within you. But there's two sides to this coin, because I find him speaking both to the believer and the non-believer. He's speaking to the follower and the person who doesn't follow him, because he's speaking to the scribes at the same time. And to that group, his most direct point is this. Can an arrogant person, can a vengeful person, can a rude person... Can a deceitful person, can a lustful person, can a greedy person really have a good heart? Well, if that's true, then orange trees can produce apples and thorn bushes can produce really tasty grapes. If that's true, then God's a liar and we know that's not possible. So God says what's in you has to be representative of who you really are. So this morning, I, I 
challenge you to call out to God, to the one who has no blind spots whatsoever, the only one who's qualified to examine your heart. Say, God, will you search me? Will you know me? See if there's any wicked way in me. Let me see myself as you see me. That's why you find Paul writing what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Transition over to communion with you. If you're new to New Hope, we have a tradition of reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11 before we ever take the elements, just a few verses. But here's the importance of it. It's not just reminding you of what Jesus did. He's saying in the midst of it, you better check yourself. You better examine yourself. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you're lifting the cup this morning and you're lifting the bread, you're saying to people around you, this is who I am. You wouldn't want to be hypocritical about that. So Paul says in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we allow time here to examine ourselves before you come up to the table. Can I remind you, if you're in this wing, um, come to this table here, and if you're in this wing, come to this table. It makes it easier for the flow. But if you're in the center here, both the front tables and the back tables are set up for you. As you pick up the elements, you are celebrating what Jesus did for you, and you are witnessing. But as you sit in your seats, you have the opportunity to examine yourself and say, God, I really do need to talk to you about this. And whatever work he's doing in your heart right now, whatever way he's massaging your heart towards these issues, surrender to him. Let him have his way. But in this time right now, take time to talk to the Father. Do this along with me, and we'll examine ourselves together. If you're able to stand, would you stand where you're at? Paul writes that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up the bread and he said, this will represent my body which is broken for you. And in the same meal, he held up a cup. A cup, he said, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Father, I thank you for the witness of this auditorium. I know that you're pleased with this and we've, we've boldly said this is who we are. And we know that you see us as who we really are. But I thank you for the witness that has just taken place. And in the same way, I thank you for the self-examination that has taken place. That we're willing to look at ourselves and, and declare that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We know we're not perfect. But for that reason, we praise you all the more because we can't earn our way to you. We depend upon you. And so we come into a time of praising you and thanking you for what you did for us. And these communion cups and this bread is part of that. We thank you that even though we are gossipers and we can lie and we can cheat, we do do those things. We don't want to, but we thank you for taking us anyway, for receiving us in spite of ourselves. 
that makes you all the more worthy of praise. And God's people said, Amen.